Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on Nerdcast, Paul Ryan says this term will be his last, both as the House Speaker and as a member of the House of Representatives. I feel like I read that somewhere a few months ago. Maybe talked about it on a podcast. In any case, we will unpack what this event, which happened Wednesday morning, means for Congress in the near term and Republicans in the midterms. Plus, the FBI raids the office of Donald Trump's personal lawyer, and the president lashes out at his own Justice Department. So another ho-hum, newsless week at the White House. We'll have Nancy Cook here to break it all down for us and what to look out for next. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show. We've got a contribution coming from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin. We're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, April 12th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome in our guests. We have in the studio uh, Charlie Matessian, our senior politics editor. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. Uh, Nancy Cook, White House reporter. Hey, thanks for having me. And on the phone, we have Politico's Capitol Bureau Chief, John Bresnahan. Bres, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's jump right in. Our first data point, three. Three years is how long Paul Ryan has been Speaker of the House. It's also, uh, coincidentally, the number of children that Paul Ryan has. And he said this week that being with his family as his kids move into their teenage years motivated him to pull the plug on his speakership and his time in elected office. He says he's going to leave Congress at the end of 2018. He's not planning to run for anything in the future. Uh, What I realize is, if I am here for one more term, my kids will only have ever known me as a weekend dad. Uh, I just can't let that happen. Um, So I will be setting new priorities in my life. But I'll also be leaving incredibly proud of what we have accomplished. So what now? There are two threads I want to pull here. There's congressional, you know, what happens in the next eight months on the Hill, what happens in the year, two years, three years after that on the Hill, and then also the political thread. How does this affect Republicans' fight to hold on to the House majority in what's already shaping up to be a strong year for the Democratic Party? So, Brez, let's dive into the congressional side first. There's seven months to go until the midterms. Nine months until the new Congress is sworn in, Ryan says that he is going to remain as speaker and serve out his time there. But that's a long time to be a lame duck, right? It is. And I'm not sure he'll be able to stay that long, to be honest. Um, Rachel Bate and I did a story this morning that ran this morning that raises uh, uh, some members raised questions about this. They'd actually like there to be a speaker election now. Uh, If Ryan's going to leave, then step down as speaker. You know, he can continue to hold his congressional seat until the end of the year, uh, allow a new speaker to be elected, whether it's Majority Leader Kevin uh, McCarthy or Majority Whip Steve Scalise or whomever it is, you know, and then that person would, you know, lead the House Republican Conference into the elections, November elections, as the incumbent speaker. Uh, I think this is a huge problem for Ryan. Now, the Ryan circle says, look, 
they're, you know, it's minority members are saying this, but I do think as this settles in and members look at this, I think Ryan has a big problem. I do. I'm not sure he'll be able to stay. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. What specifically is the issue with, with being a lame duck speaker? Is it that, you know, are there stuff coming down the pike legislatively that he needs to enforce unity on that people would be less likely to listen to him on or what, you know, what, what, what's driving these concerns? I think it's just, I mean, I think it, first of all, Ryan's retirement is a disaster for Republicans. There's no other way to, to say it. Not only does it put his own seat in play, which is a tough seat for them to hold, the message, the, the image it gives, you know, the speaker is leaving. Why should, you know, why should, you know, why should anybody vote Republican? Ryan's leaving. You know, the, the, you know, the Democrats have already spent and this is, you know, you know, Ryan knows they're going to lose the House. He's leaving. He's bailing out now. Um, so... Uh, uh, you know, the, the idea is like, I think with a lot of members, if Ryan is not going to stay, why, why would he want to be stay on as speaker? I mean, that just seems to some members as, you know, uh, you know, we, you know, it's fine if he stays in Congress, that's his right. That's his, 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 um, responsibility to his constituents. Um, if he feels that's the way uh, that's the case, but you know, how can he lead them if he's leaving? I mean, I, you know, and I think that's a powerful argument. I think that's going to resonate with a bunch of members. So I think as members sort through this, I think Ryan has a big problem. That's a good point. And Charlie, you know, we can jump into the political side here a little bit. The House Republicans, uh, as Elena Schneider wrote uh, for us this morning, have kind of built the foundation of their defense of the majority this year on on three pillars, basically. One has been a, a favorable political map that we, we know uh, Republicans hold a lot of districts that were drawn by fellow Republicans to help elect them. Then there's the incumbency factor that they, you know, that they said they have incumbents in these places who have been battle tested, who, have, who are known locally, who can run campaigns to win. And then there's Paul Ryan's massive fundraising that he's been pulling in millions and millions of dollars. All of a sudden, all three of those pillars look at risk. I mean, the, the first one, it, it seems like the, the, this district advantage was already being overtaken by the political environment in a lot of places. And we'll have to see if that continues to play out. But the incumbency advantage with all these retirements coming in and potentially the fundraising are now on, at risk of drying up. Yeah, I mean, I think as Brez said, it, it's an unmitigated disaster for the Republican Party. Uh, there was a great quote in that story that you're talking about in Elena Schneider's story from Tom Davis, who is a well-known character in D.C. and he's the you know the former uh, NRCC chairman. He's so he's the guy who, for several cycles, uh, was charged with uh, protecting the Republican uh, majority. So he knows congressional districts and and uh, the House as well as anyone. And his quote was, "This is like Eisenhower stepping down uh, before D-Day." And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that because there is the aspect that uh, Ryan is a money minting machine. Leaders of parties tend to do that. John Boehner did that. Nancy Pelosi mints money for the Democratic Party. Uh, so there's that cash aspect uh, that's worrisome. But here's the other thing. I think if you broaden the lens and, and look beyond Ryan, look at what's happened just over the last month alone in the Republican majority. So you have Ryan stepping down. You have Ryan Costello, the member of a pretty competitive uh, swing seat in Pennsylvania, stepping down. Yesterday, uh, it was buried in the Ryan news, but another member of Congress, Dennis Ross, in Florida steps down. So Costello and Ross are fairly junior members. They have made the decision that it, uh, the decision many members are coming to, which is it just sucks to be a member of Congress and that the drawbacks outweigh the benefits 
benefits by a lot. And so they're stepping down. But look at when they're doing it. It is April now. It is very late in the election cycle for them to be stepping down. Members have been warned. uh, If you want to protect the party, you want to protect the majority, you want to be team players, you should have done this back in January. The message went out to everyone and many members did that. But the fact that they're doing it now uh, tells you that there's a sort of an every man and woman for himself mentality in the Republican Party because of the current environment. To follow what Charlie says, and right now, as we speak, as we're taping this, Ryan's holding a press conference, and he's pushing back hard on this fundraising issue, saying he's the top fundraiser. Why would you take him off the field? But this is an issue. Is the money coming to Ryan because he's Ryan, or is he becoming to Ryan because he's speaker? Okay, and this is this is the issue they faced when Boehner left in 2015. There was right. a, Boehner was a phenomenally good fundraiser, and, and the idea was like, oh, we're going to lose a lot of money because you know, Boehner's coming off the field. Well, you know, Ryan stepped in there. I think if you talk to McCarthy or Scalise or that faction that wants Ryan to go now, they'd say the money will come to the Republican leader, okay? It doesn't matter who the Republican leader is. And the second part of this, in the age of super PACs, when one person can stroke a check for you know, $10 million, $25 million, $50 million, that is not, you know, the amount of money raised through uh, 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 through the NRCC or through even in re-election committees is not as important as, or, or is not as critical as the money that they can come in super PACs, you know, congressional leadership fund or anything. Also, and in one third point, you do have President Trump. He's going to raise a bunch of money for the NRCC. I mean, you know, even if Ryan leaves, Trump will still be there and the, the president will raise money for the party. That's a really great point. Na- Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about, about Trump's relationship with Ryan and, and, you know, how it's evolved over the last year and a half or so and also uh, his, his relationship with some of the folks who potentially could replace him? Yeah, so I think that Trump and Ryan at this point have a pretty good relationship, but it really wasn't always that way. You know, Ryan was really critical of uh, Trump during the presidential campaign. And our colleague uh, Tim Alberta had a piece uh, up on Politico today talking about how, uh, you know, Ryan had assumed that Hillary Clinton would win the election and had the speech prepared that was going to distance himself from uh, some of Trump's identity politics and some of his, you know, comments, divisive comments about race and and sort of uh, dog whistles to white nationalists. He was going to deliver that, uh, you know, on election night or the day after the election. He ended up shelving that in order to sort of forge this pretty decent relationship with the president. And in turn, he's gotten some of the things that he wanted. You know, Ryan used to be the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is the tax writing committee. He's always wanted to do a tax bill. Um, you know, I covered Ryan in the House when he was the chairman of the budget committee. So he's always really loved these wonky issues. And he did manage to help pass a historic tax bill. And, and that's a huge thing. Um, but I think in order to do that, he had to overlook some of uh, Trump's you know, personal issues. And I feel like that will be a part of his legacy. I also just on the policy stuff want to point out that he did pass a tax bill, but the Congressional Budget Office also showed that that tax bill is going to blow a huge hole in the deficit and it's expected to top $1 trillion uh, by 2020, despite the fact that the country has really good economic growth. So that will also be part of Ryan's legacy. So I think the legacy is going to be complicated. Mm -hmm. I want to read a headline from Politico, uh, the race to replace Paul Ryan is on. However, th- this story ran on Monday, two days before Ryan's announcement. So, Brez, tell us a little bit about the leadership fight that is coming up, which, you know, 
everyone knew was going to happen. We just didn't know exactly when it was going to really start in earnest. And, you know, which is why the, the news still kind of hit us like a thunderbolt on Wednesday morning that uh, that Ryan was going to be making this announcement. But you've got the House Majority Leader, Kevin McCarthy. You've got the House Majority Whip, Steve Scalise, who uh, are both kind of shadowboxing right now. Yeah, I mean, McCarthy is running for speaker. I mean, there's no question about that. Or alternatively, minority leader. Um, in fact, both of them are. Um, but the speaker has a different requirement. In speaker, you have to be elected on the floor, whereas minority leader, you just have to be elected inside your conference. So, I mean, it's a, complete, it's a much higher bar to be speaker. I mean, the thing about McCarthy is he tried for to be speaker in 2015 after Boehner left, and he failed. He, there was opposition from the House Freedom Caucus, which is a group of uh, 40-odd uh the hardline Republican conservatives, they didn't like Boehner. And at the time, they opposed McCarthy getting in the top, uh, getting to speaker. And that opened the door for Ryan to become speaker. Ryan jumped over uh, McCarthy. Um, so now McCarthy has a second chance. And you can see with McCarthy, he, he I mean, he's been running. He's been running for a while. I mean, Politico was writing about Ryan's potential retirement in December. So, I mean, it's been clear for a while that this was a possibility. Um, and uh, though everyone assumed Ryan would would stay at least through the election, and I'm still shocked by this decision. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, uh, McCarthy has really, he, he's, as Nancy was talking about, Ryan never had that close personal relationship with Trump. McCarthy has it. I mean, he, you know, Trump calls him Mike Kevin. You know, he jokes about it. They talk constantly, uh, talk a couple times a week. Um, if not more, McCarthy's in touch with the, the top staff in the White House. Uh, so McCarthy thinks, you know, Trump's support, if, if they're still the majority come November, would help him become speaker. He's also really stepped up his fundraising. I mean, McCarthy took in $9 million in the first quarter. He helped raise $9 million, including a bunch of money with Vice President Mike Pence, who's a former House colleague. I mean, McCarthy will be able to raise a lot of money. He can go to Silicon Valley. He can go to uh, uh, some of these tech companies that, that aren't, aren't – uh, um, you know, as a Californian, he, he can go in and raise this money. And he's worked hard on these relationships. So, you know, McCarthy's out there running. Now, Scalise, Scalise is an interesting uh, situation. Uh, there had been, a couple of years ago, Scalise did have a problem with a, with, with a, a, a long-ago speech to a white supremacist group far before he was right. in Congress. And that had become a problem. And Boehner and McCarthy stepped in and helped uh, save uh, Scalise, as well as uh, Democrat Cedric, Cedric Richmond of Louisiana. So um, at the time, we thought, well, that's it. Scalise is kind of topped out. He's not going to go any further. He was the whip at that point. We, we thought, okay, he's not going to go any further. But Scalise was, you know, a very, uh, you know, the situation where he was shot last June, the shooting in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, you know, was a terrible event. He almost died. He's you know, recovered from this, he's still, you know, he's, he's walking with crutches and everything. And, and, you know, and, you know, he may never be the same physically again, but his recovery, how he handled the shooting and his recovery from this has been really just from a human interest standpoint, it's been amazing to watch. He really is. It's phenomenal that he's come this far. And I think it's really kind of inspired members and they, they're taking another look at a guy like Scalise and saying, wow, look, look at him now. I mean, you know, it really is. I think members on both sides of the aisle, 
are, are on a personal level or in awe of it. And I think among Republicans, they're, they, they, they're reassessing how they feel about Scalise. And I do think that's put uh, a different, uh, uh, put him in a different light. If Republicans were to somehow, uh, you know, against the odds right now, right. you know, it's not impossible, but if right. against the odds they were able to maintain the majority, then whoever, in order to become speaker, you need 218 votes on the floor. And that's where McCarthy fell the last time. And you could see a scenario in which, you know, Republicans hold maybe 220 or 221 right. seats, something like that. And that gives a very slim margin of error for McCarthy to try and do this again, whereas Scalise might, because of that human interest factor that you're talking about, maybe he maybe he would have a better shot at that. Whereas on the flip side, if all you need is half plus one of your conference for that internal vote to become right. House Minority Leader, maybe McCarthy has a better ha, has the inside shot at that because of the longevity of his relationships and his work. Uh, with within the House, that's a fascinating question. The, yeah, the, I don't think there's any question McCarthy becomes become minority leader. But it, again, he has a close relationship with Trump. Uh, you know, there's been talk about McCarthy maybe White House chief of staff, and there's a possibility does McCarthy want to be minority leader? Let me also make one other point about being speaker. You win the election in November, but the speaker vote is not till January. And you know, uh, they have they have an eternal vote inside the Republican conference at that point, saying yes, he's our speech, speaker speaker designate. But the floor vote doesn't start until the Congress, the right. new Congress starts. And, uh, you know, the, the fallacy that people have about leadership elections is not whether or not they like a person, all right? They may like Kevin McCarthy. The people vote for somebody in a speaker, in a, in a leadership race because it helps them on whatever level, politically, personally, uh, financially, in terms of fundraising, uh, however it helps them. And, the, and, the, and, you know, if they think McCarthy being speaker would help them, that's fine, you know, and if not, they'll, they won't vote for him. And it doesn't matter if they like him or not. That's the wrong barometer. It's that they, you know, it wouldn't benefit them to having uh, him as speaker. And that's why Boehner eventually lost his hold on the conference. That's a really good point. All right, a lot to, to keep an eye on. You know, who knows? We might have another uh, uh, update on this as soon as, you know, next week or two if, uh, if those members who are pushing for something to happen sooner, like you mentioned, get their way. But let's leave it there. John Bresenhan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nancy and Charlie, you'll stick around for our next data point, which is the number 10. That's 10 days. There's a new push in Congress to give any special counsel 10 days after a termination to challenge the firing in court. It's very abstract, of course. There's no particular reason at all why that would have come up this week. Right, Nancy? Tell us <laughs> tell us about this. Tell us about this nutso couple of days at the White House. Yeah, so I've been at the White House this week and it's just been it's been really busy, but it's been sort of a hurry up and wait situation because we're tracking really two things. One is the president going to are there gonna be airstrikes on Syria? following this potential uh, chemical attack that uh, the Syrian president dropped on his own people. And then, two, the other thing is the FBI earlier this week raided the uh, law office and also hotel room of Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. And the president has been privately very upset by this. Well, actually, even publicly. I mean, in a uh, pool spray with a bunch of reporters, he had his arms crossed and he was talking about this was a disgrace. Um, and he called he, it an attack on the country. He did. And, and so he's been taking it very personally. So he was fuming publicly and then privately has been absolutely furious about it. And so the other thing that we've really been watching and, and the thing that he's been asking people about is should he fire Rod Rosenstein, who is the person uh, over at the at the Department of Justice who is overseeing the special investigation. And, and the White House has also been insisting this week that the president also has 
power to fire uh, the special uh, investigator, Robert Mueller himself, directly. And so there are sort of two big things. We're watching what's going to happen with Syria, but also is the president going to fire someone to try to make this special investigation stop? This is all I mean, we've seen Trump uh, go bananas a little bit over the uh, the Mueller probe and uh, the Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general's oversight of that before. But it seems like he, he really went bananas about this. And he was talking about, you know, the, oh, the attorney client privilege is dead. And so on. whereas, in fact, the process that uh, prosecutors have to go through in order to raid a law office is so onerous that I mean, that's the real signal here. That's why he's he's reacting like this. It's so it's such a dangerous moment for him. It really is, and it, it's just another instance of uh, the special investigation moving beyond what the White House thought it typically would, which was was there any collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government during the election, and really into Trump's inner circle. And it's really it has been creeping into Trump's inner circle. For a while, the White House attorney Don McGahn has been interviewed. Ryan's Priebus, a former chief of staff, has been interviewed. But now Trump's own personal attorney, uh, you know, the FBI has raided uh, his office and hotel room, as I said. And apparently what the FBI is most interested in is the payments that Michael Cohen made to uh, two women, one of whom is Stormy Daniels, right before the election. And were those seen as a payoff? And that's really what they're looking at. And so... This raises a whole bunch of other questions about, you know, the use of campaign funds. Uh, was this hush money? And so the investigation is sort of growing in scope, but it's also getting closer and closer to the president. And I think it's also moving us closer to the actual Watergate moment. People have been talking about the parallels with Watergate for so long, but I think the Cohen raid gets us closer than we've ever been in part because of that reaction and be- and in part because Trump is so openly talking about the firing now. And that that is where I think uh, all the action is right now. And that's the most interesting thing going on in my mind in Washington, which is the progress of that bipartisan bill to uh, protect Mueller in some way um, – uh, in some way or another, because this is it's this generation of Republican politicians. It's their moment. The the Watergate generation of Republican moments stepped up to their constitutional duties. And at a certain point, they recognized that something was deeply amiss in the White House and they jettisoned the president and cut him loose. Now it's going to be this generation of Republican politicians that are going to have to figure out what they're going to do about this uh, about this situation. And it's probably worth remembering, like if you look back at all of the 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 dead-ender Republicans, every one of them in their obituary, and I know this because I was really fascinated by it a couple months ago and looked into it, many of them, it's the first line in their obituaries, like a dead-end supporter of, of uh, Nixon to the end, the, these accomplished members of Congress who were there for years, but their obituary in the headline and in the lead was their defense of Nixon to the very end. Oh, that's really interesting. And so, like you said, Charlie, what we've seen on the Hill this week, uh, Chuck Grassley, the uh, senator from Iowa, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, is uh, going to allow, it seems like is going to allow a vote in his committee uh, on this bill uh, that would give uh, special counsels 10 days to challenge a firing. Though, we should add, it's still unclear if it would ever make it to the Senate floor. As our colleagues uh, Alana Shore and Burgess Everett wrote in their story, they quoted Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who said, I haven't seen a clear indication yet that we need to pass something to keep him from being removed, referring to Mueller. So, we're seeing some cracks, but in terms of uh, the leadership in, in Congress, they they seem still uh, reluctant to kind of take up that mantle that you just mentioned, Charlie. And we haven't even gotten to the question of whether it could make it to the House floor, much less the Senate floor. 
Well, and we've seen no evidence since Trump's campaign that congressional leadership or even rank and file people, there have been some rank and file people who have stood up to Trump. But for the most part, Congress has largely gone along with his things. Um, You know, and I think it's in part because they wanted a tax bill and they wanted uh, to slash regulations, but they've gone along with, you know, some of the things that he's said, some of the identity politics, um, some of the racially insensitive things that he said, uh, you know, they've gone along with the Access Hollywood tape and some of the questions about how the president treats women. He's derided Muslims. He's derided a bunch of different ethnic groups and they've gone along with it. And so there's just not really a history of Republican lawmakers standing up to the president. And if they did do this bill that would protect Mueller in the special investigation, this would be really the first instance of them in mass standing up to the president. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And like, like Charlie was saying, you know, the the in in Watergate, it was a question of standing up uh, to to as criminal activity was starting to come out. We haven't gotten quite there yet with with Trump, but certainly there's been enough that there are plenty of non congressional Republicans who have stood up and said that what Trump is doing uh, about this this or that is wrong. Jeff Flake comes to mind, who's about to be a non congressional Republican uh, soon, having decided that uh, he'd had enough. Um, but I think the people to watch here are are not the flakes or the Ben Sasses, the people that have have con- been very co- consistent in calling out Trump for his aberrant behavior in, in various ways. It's the people like uh, that I consider more independent voices within the Republican Party. Uh, people like Lindsey Graham. It's people like Chuck Grassley. I think when you see them turn or not turn, that will determine the outcome here of of how Congress treats the situation. That's a great point. So, Nancy, all of this is unfolding. This this is causing chaos within Trump that is bursting forth for all of us to see on TV and on Twitter and, you know, for you guys who cover the White House in, in the inner workings of the White House. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, this is all unfolding as the administration is considering military action against Syria and maybe by the time we publish, we'll have already done so. Nancy, you mentioned the chemical attack against civilians, which uh, seems to have been ordered by the Syrian president, Assad. So... Where, where do we stand on that? This is coming at a moment of flux for the National Security Council. You've got a new National Security Advisor in John Bolton in. President Trump is canceling his trip to Peru. The Defense Secretary is canceling his trip uh, out west for the weekend. Where, are, where do we stand at this point? So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. The White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, in the briefing yesterday kept emphasizing that, you know, all options are on the table. Uh, meanwhile, President Trump seems to be forecasting what he is intending to do on Twitter. I mean, this is such a remarkable moment in the presidency because we have uh, the president sort of fuming about the investigation to reporters in the Oval Office, um, you know, earlier this week. But also he's talking openly about potentially doing airstrikes on on Twitter. Um, And so it does seem like the administration is moving towards it. And uh, the new National Security Advisor, John Bolton, is definitely a much more hawkish force. Uh, We don't know sort of privately exactly what he's advising. And he also is really shaking up the people on the National Security Council this week. Uh, Just this morning, a fourth person resigned, and he's only been there since Monday. But I think that this is something really to watch at the end of the week. And a lot of things in the Trump administration happen at Friday early evening. So, uh, you know, as a White House reporter, I basically am settling in for a long night on Friday night with the assumption that there could potentially either be airstrikes or a major firing. 
And the sad thing, uh, and I say it's sad because it's only going to generate so much more cynicism uh, in a system that's already wallowing in cynicism, uh, is we're moving on these parallel tracks towards a wag the dog moment where you could have a situation where Trump is lighting up Mueller on Twitter or fires him or Rosenstein or something like that at the same time that he's raining missiles on Syria, which is going to tell the world, not to mention our already cynical uh, electorate, that every worst feeling, opinion they had about the way American government operates is true. At least in their mind, that's what it's going to look like. That is a sobering thought. Nancy, in in terms of just the internal dynamics at the White House this week, is it a tense place right now with these people coming and going, with the president flying off the handle? There was a line in one of your stories about the president's tweets being a war cry. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say a couple things. One, I think that it's a little tense because the president is so upset about this FBI raid. And there's a sense that, you know, he's in meetings with his arms crossed. He's using really fiery rhetoric and people aren't sure what he's going to do. And then I would say the other thing that I keep hearing from administration people, administration officials, is that there's just a real sense of chaos now partly because there's all these things that are up in the air, partly just because there's this huge revolving door of officials coming and going. And and General Kelly, the chief of staff, has also been really marginalized in the past several weeks. And so there's sort of this feeling that there's nobody like minding the store or the White House. You know, John Bolton's coming in and doing all this stuff. Larry Kudlow is the new uh, National Economic Council director. He's, uh, you know, not changing up the staff, but he has his own prerogatives. So there's just the sense that like no one's in charge. No one knows what the president's going to do. Only the president sort of knows what he's going to do. Although, there's a feeling that he's not always really strategic. And so everyone I talk to just says that internally there's a huge sense of chaos and people aren't really sure what to do and no one can quite interpret what the president's next moves will be. And, and that has been the feeling like a bunch of different times before. But that is particularly the case this week. And the, the stakes seem very high. They are very high. Yeah. There, you know, there was a line in the story that you wrote with Andrew, Andrew Restuccia the other day about Trump's, how Trump's decision to scrap this weekend's long planned travel to the summit of the Americas in Lima, Peru, will leave him largely alone in the White House with little on his schedule, giving him time to stew and watch cable news, which is something we have to think about now. And Charlie, I, I was struck. Can you think of any like you, you brought up Watergate before and the historical parallel. This is something I spent a lot of time thinking about while I was on leave earlier this year, uh, just the unpredictability of it all. And is there any kind of historical precedent for, for that, of just this, this feeling of really not knowing what's coming next? As far as I know, certainly not in my career. I haven't seen anything like that. I mean, there was a great deal of chaos in early, uh, in the early Clinton administration, but not even like this. I mean, you see, you see a lot of chaos in early administrations, particularly for the uh, ones that are gripped by hubris, like uh, early Clinton administration. Maybe to a lesser extent, early Obama administration. But I mean, it's not even the same ballpark, and not worth even comparing. Although here's the weird thing: I do think we're getting some clarity in terms of what to expect from the administration and how they operate. Uh, in amid all the chaos. I mean, what we're going to have for the next four years, and we know this now because there's a pattern and there's a rhythm to it, we're going to have this ambient chaos that's always there. And we can just see that from the, the Bolton hiring. Here on a national security team, he introduces this person who's known for not getting along with others. Uh, they bring him in despite all of the drawbacks, which are well known in Washington and have been well vetted already. Then we get the the, the uh, snapback where lots of aides leave. And so we're beginning to see this pattern where ambient chaos, 
Pence disappears. He leaves town, goes on a trip somewhere. Ivanka Jared and, and Jared Ivanka they always They always leave when there's chaos. Yeah, they, they like hightail it anywhere they can get. It's like a cycle. There's a rhythm to it. There's a pattern. And at least that part is predictable. And just so just so I know, the, the president was supposed to go to the Summit of America's uh, Friday, Saturday, it's this big, uh, you know, heads of government summit that happens every three years for leaders in the Western Hemisphere. He canceled that trip er- earlier this week to uh, allegedly stay here and monitor the Syria situation. People also think it perhaps has something to do with the uh, potentially firing someone involved in the special investigation. But uh, Jared and Ivanka are some of the people going in his place. So they are continuing their pattern of escaping town when things really get nuts. <laughs> All right. So that's a lot for us to keep track of for uh, as the week winds down. But we'll be keeping an eye out for potential military action against Syria. We're going to be watching very closely to see if this, uh, you know, the fire and brimstone rhetoric on Mueller and Rosenstein actually turns into anything or if the president once once again pulls back from the brink that that he's reportedly considered uh, several times in the past year of firing uh, the special counsel or the uh, Justice Department official overseeing him. Guys, that was a great segment. Thanks for the conversation. Nancy, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Charlie, thank you. Thanks, Scott. And listeners, as promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Kimberly Fricker of Richmond, Virginia, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Kimberly, take us out. Nerdcast is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez. With help this week from Adrian Hurst, Dave Shaw as the executive producer, Nerdcast's researcher is Zach Montalaro, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Kimberly. Listeners, we found Kimberly because she emailed us. If you are a Nerdcast podcast fan who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week.